Hi, this is Corey Olson, the Tolkien Professor, and welcome to another episode of the Silmarillion Seminar. Greetings. This is Dave Kale of the Silmarillionaires, also known as Tara Tanamir, the not-quite-so-deathless. Welcome to episode 17 of the Silmarillion Seminar, How You Gonna Keep Them Down on the Farm After They've Seen Gondolin. This week we analyze the chapter entitled Of Myglin. Despite the chapter's nominal focus on the troubled and troublesome son of Ale, discussion nevertheless ranges far and wide, covering diverse topics such as Martin Shaw's mispronunciation of Meglin's name, connections, however tenuous, between Gondolin and Gondor, other echoes of the Gondolin myth in Tolkien's works, moral ambiguity in Tolkien being far more widespread than most people give him credit for, and Ale's extremely complicated nature as dangerous loner, jealous possessor, dark elf, and tragic victim. Toward the end of the episode, you'll also enjoy a special dramatic reenactment, courtesy of the Silmarillionaire's acting troupe, including yours truly. Oh, and we did eventually find our way to the chapter's titular character, Myglin, particularly his paucity of dialogue. I mean, come on! The guy needs to get a new agent. Finally, it is worth noting that this chapter like other recent ones, is set in the calm before the storm and is sowing the seeds of destruction to come very soon. Okay, good evening, everybody. I think I got things situated here. Um, let's uh, let's get going. We're talking about Myglin tonight, so we'll get a bunch of Gondolin stuff in and uh, also get to talk not only about Myglin, of course, but his sketchy dad, Aeol, uh, who is, I think, a pretty unusual character uh, among the elves of the First Age. So, uh, so looking forward to that. I want to start off, as usual, with sort of uh, some of the sort of simpler clarifications and pronunciations and things. Uh, Aeol is how you pronounce the name of Myglin's sketchy dad, and Myglin is how you pronounce the name of the titular character of this chapter. This is, of course, as I've mentioned before, one of the famous two most prominent characters that Martin Shaw pronounces incorrectly consistently all through his reading of the Silmarillion, uh, that is Mythros and Myglin, both of which should be I and not A. Um, so he says it may go in all the way through. Uh, and uh, I actually, it's this is one uh, I sometimes have a hard time with, or that is I'll sometimes slip, because both of these, I pronounced it that way too. When I was first reading it to myself, uh, when I was in high school and college, and so I, uh, I didn't, uh, I didn't sort of catch myself there for a long time. So I will still sometimes slip uh, into my old way of uh, <clears throat> into my old way of uh, pronouncing it. But anyway, Myglin is the correct pronunciation. Um, uh, let's see. Matt has two questions. The first, uh, the there's the reference to the fell creatures of Ungoliant, uh, who are uh, attacking the escort of of Arathel. And uh, yeah, those are spiders. Those are like Shelob's brothers and sisters, basically. Um, Shelob, we know, uh, is the last child of Ungoliant, and the rest of her kids were there uh, uh, in Arid Gorgoroth. So yeah, so imagine like four or five Shelob's chasing after you, uh, and that's basically what they were facing there. So so yeah, yeah, you can see why uh, they had a little bit of trouble uh, and ended up, ended up running off home. Um, the as the Matt also had a linguistic question. The the Iach 
I-A-C-H suffix uh, that is in the words arosiach and bruthiach. Uh, and there you, that, 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 that means ford. So the arosiach, uh, I mean, again, as usual, as we've seen so many times before, the actual translation of the Elvish word is just like the simplest thing that it could possibly be. Arosiach just translates to the ford of Eros. The river Eros is, and there's a ford there. So arosiach is the ford of, of Eros, and uh, the brithiach is the ford that's near the forest of Brethil. So, um, so yeah, again, that's pretty simple. But the but the iach suffix kuri means ford, the place where you cross the river. Um, so okay, let's see. Those were the relatively simple ones, I think. Um, okay, let's start. Hmm. Let's see. Let's start with let's start with gondolin. We do um we do gondolin first uh, in this chapter. Uh, so let's start with Gondolin and Turgon, and then we'll talk about Arathel, and then Aeol, and then Maeglin, and the uh, conclusion of the story. And we'll do... Matt has uh, um, has recommended that we read aloud the uh the passage from uh from with 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 Aeol and Kurufin, like two of the nastiest elves in the first age being snarky to each other. Uh so I agree that's a pretty good passage. So we 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 can totally do that. But let's start off with Gondolin. Um and uh uh John, you had uh, a couple things that you wanted to say about Turgon? I think we could start there, especially thinking back to the conversation that we had last time about uh, Turgon and Finrod and their kind of looking backwards towards Valinor. Um, um, yeah, I wanted to first discuss um, the concept that Gondolin is portrayed in this passage as this very mysterious place. You know, originally, Gondolin's name, as I discussed last time, was Ondolinde, um, and it was changed, of course, I believe, by Ulmo or by someone else to basically Gondolin's City of Stone. And characters throughout this chapter, um, you know, even Maeglin gets the interpretation of Gondolin as this very remote and distant um, force as basically a buffer against Morgoth, but that is not as openly available or as accessible as, let's say, um, Doriath, though Doriath is protected by the Gerdob of Melian. Now, um, I would like also to address um, the different um, viewpoints Turgon has over the exile of the Noldor with Arathel, his sister. Now, we see Turgon in the beginning basically being content to remain within his own realm. He's created Gondolin, and he's happy with that. He's fine. But Arathel um, seeks wider countries to ride around in. She seems to be far more bold or reckless, depending on how you look at it. And her outlook, I find, somewhat similar to Gladwell, in the sense that, you know, she wants to have her own sense of power in this new country. She wants to explore. Um, and this, you know, conception, whether it's rebelliousness or whether it's courageousness, seems to be aiming her towards basically this um, this goal or this objective, which is contrary to the whole concept of Gondolin. Gondolin is by far one of the most secretive strongholds of the Noldor. Uh, I mean, if you compare it to Doriath and Nargothrond, both Doriath and Nargothrond, while Morgoth does not have a clear place for them on the map, 
he, you know, technically speaking, um, it's protected not in the same manner in which Gondolin is. Gondolin is fenced in. It is surrounded. It is protected by Thorandor and the eagles. So with this special kind of very individualized elvish protection, um, we see a different ideal of the Noldor coming through. And Eol um, represents this later on, but I'd like to touch on this now because I think it heavily relates to the perception of Gondolin. I mean, Eol perceives the people of Turgon as a threat. He basically says to Maeglin, you know, you are my son and of the Teleri, and you will have no dealings with the Noldor. As basically um, this, you know, this view of the Noldor being invaders, you know, kicking out or driving forth the people of the Teleri from their homeland. And of course, you know, we get conflict, you know, conflicting point of views here back and forth. But what is pretty consistent, and I, I believe um, Tolkien's point here, is that in the beginning, in the last chapter, we saw a perception of Gondolin as it was within the walls of Gondolin. Whereas now what we're seeing here in this chapter is that look, of course, but also a sense of what, it, what it's like you know, on the outside, what people are experiencing in terms of the rumor, the whisper. You know, instead of the whisper of the nameless fear, this is the whisper of the nameless hope. Or I shouldn't say nameless, but, you know, we get Gondolin of the Seven Names. You know, we're only hearing of the Seven Names in the Book of Lost Tales. We don't hear them here. But we do hear Gondolin the One, the City of Stone. And it is by far very secret. So sorry to ramble on, but that's my wonderful dissertation. No, good. I mean, I, I think there's a lot to think about with Gondolin here. And I'm glad that you brought up the name uh, uh, again as well, because the name is something that uh, I meant to get back to last week, but didn't. I think it is really fascinating that we see uh, that sort of the contrast between the two names, which are very, simil very similar, though that when it gets translated in a different language, when it's called something else, um, again, Turg Turgon does name it. Ondalinde, which which you know, which means the the, the you know the 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 veil of the song of water, because uh, he taught all of the the the, the waterfalls there. Um, but uh, it's changed to Gondolin, which just means hidden rock, and uh, and that of course is sort of is is, is the one that catches on. Uh, and John, as you pointed out, both this week and last, it is kind of affirmed by 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 Olmo. That's what Olmo calls it. Um, but uh but yes i mean i think that that is really interesting that turgon's name for it actually doesn't have anything to do with secrecy but has everything to do um with sort of music and 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 so basically sort of the celebration of the beauty that he has found uh there in gondolin with of course a polite little nod to uh to olmo himself uh of course it's the voice of the voice of olmo that you can hear in the waters but uh, uh, but then what the actual identity of it, the, the actual common name of it, just has to do with its secrecy, and its secrecy is certainly the the, the important thing. Um, one of the one of the changes, uh, Gondolin is always going to be, uh, you know, how, always was and still will be the last refuge of the Noldor uh, in Beleriand after Morgoth breaks the leaguer and starts starts kicking butt. Um, as the story changed over time from the original versions of it, um, basically sort of it became less alone. In the first versions, in the Book of Lost Tales, Gondolin is the only thing, essentially, uh, of the of the Noldoran realms that survives uh, the first battle. You know, we get... Um, we get in the Silmarillion, we'll see once Morgoth busts out, there are basically three refuges that are left. 
uh, you know, you've got Gondolin and you've got Nargothrond and you've got Doriath, and then they'll they'll each drop one by one, and Gondolin is the last. But uh, um, so I, I said it's sort of a little bit less unique in these later versions uh, than it was in Tolkien's original thinking, but that was always really central, uh, really central to Gondolin. And I think you know that the point that you make, John, about Turgon's satisfaction with Gondolin is, I think, a, a really interesting one. Um, that uh, that you're certainly right to say Turgon, although as we were talking about, he is looking, as we were talking about last time, he's looking back at Valinor. He's not just pining away for Valinor. He is content where he is. Um, and his his retreat, his concealment, is not merely a, a sort of a tactical or, or sort of strategic uh, retreat. He's, he's, uh, he's, like in you know in sort of retirement he seems to he does seem to be genuinely content to keep himself sealed away uh and that seems to be fine now of course Aravel is not um and we'll come back to that in a little bit uh, uh Brandon you had wanted to say something before um i always thought uh etymologically there might have been a uh, and i believe there was sort of a uh tie between Gondor and Gondolin, and almost in their architecture too, as sort of these high white places that, um, I mean, I guess Gondor isn't that secret, but um, just, I don't know if there's any sort of ties there of Tolkien. I, I, I seem to recall some sort of connection between the two. Are we supposed to be making those types of connections, or do they just not have anything to do with each other? Well, I mean, it's hard to say they have nothing to do with each other. I mean, certainly, I mean, you do have a similar root, uh, Gondolin and Gondor, the similar root there, Gond is the one that means stone. Um, Gondor is the land of stone, and uh, Gondolin is the hidden rock, the hidden stone. Um, so, uh, um, so I mean, that's that's sort of the linguistic tie there, and why the names are similar. Um, it's not a coincidence that you've got Minas Tirith, and of course, the most prominent architectural feature of Minas Tirith is uh, is the White Tower of Ichthelion. Ichthelion, of course, is named after one of the captains of Gondolin, um, Glorfindel, and Ichthelion are the two great captains of Turgon. Um, in, I mean, apart from Maeglin, of course, who will be until he goes bad or rather worse, um, uh, he, he, he's, he's, he's one of the chief captains. In fact, he's the, we, we will see Ichthelion, um, Ichthelion killing a Balrog and, of course, dying, um, in the fall of Gondolin. So, um, so yeah, uh, the, 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 certainly. And obviously, you know, we would have to be trying really hard not to be thinking about Gondolin uh, when we get to the Tower of Minas Tirith, um, which, of course, we've already met briefly in our geographical survey uh, a few weeks ago. Um, and, of course, Minas Tirith, as you will probably remember, just means the Tower of Guard. Um, so you can see how that's kind of a generic name, and you'd see why that would be used more than once. But, um, but yeah, I mean, are, are the... Um, Oh, and I, and, and I mentioned the, the tower, not only the name of the tower, that it's the Tower of Ecthelion, and Ecthelion is named after the captain of Gondolin, but the most prominent architectural feature of Gondolin itself also is the Great Tower of Turgon. Um, it, it also has a great central tower, um, and sort of the, the moment when Gondolin falls, um, like sort of when the fall of Gondolin is official is when that tower, the great tower uh, of Turgon, topples over. So, um, so yeah, that's, that's, uh, I, I don't think that that connection is imaginary at all. Um, but basically, I, I wouldn't, 
But at the same time, I wouldn't make too much of it. I wouldn't make too much of it in the sense of really drawing direct parallels between the two, because obviously there are some major differences. Um, you know, as you say, you don't have that sense of you don't have that sense of of of, of secrecy. Gondor, you know, and Minas Tirith, they're not they're not a refuge, uh, you know, for people to retreat to in in, in the same sense that it's, it's there, there's no concealment offered there, and you know, concealment is sort of the number one thing. Um, you know, Gondolin is like this, uh, and again, John, coming back to to some of the language that that you were using, you know, it is like this almost this 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 secret hope, um, as you say, not. Nameless. It's got lots of names. It's like the opposite of nameless. Um, but it is this 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 name of hope, which is no more than a name to most people. Um, but uh, but yeah, it's but but there it is. And um, you, I mean, of course, Gondor is is you know is 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 a refuge in a sense, and brings, but it, but but it just operates totally differently. It is a stalwart tower, uh, and. Uh, it, it is, I mean, essentially the role kind of strategically, uh, that Gondor is playing with Mordor, with Sauron, is more like what the Noldor are doing in the siege, uh, of Angband here. That is, they are, you know, they have guarded, when the, when Gondor is established, part of the reason that it's established there, uh, is to, you know, to guard the crossings of the river and to keep Sauron penned up in, uh, uh, in Mordor, is even before the battles of the Last Alliance. Um, you know, this is, this is why, you know, they, 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 they see themselves as guarding, uh, the fences there of Mordor. So, so again, it's, it, again, it's not really functioning like Gondor, or like, like Gondolin. <clears throat> so I wouldn't make too much of it, but there's no question. What you can see is that Gondolin will continue to be this this iconic, this mythic, uh, um, um, this mythic thing, this 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 mythic story to the people in the Third Age. Remember also the impact that it has on Bilbo when Bilbo remembers when he realizes that his sword sting was made in Gondolin, um, just like uh, just like uh, 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 Gandalf's sword and Thorin's sword. Of course, you'll remember, uh, <clears throat> or maybe you've forgotten, but it's fun to remember when we get to this point in the Silmarillion, Glamdring, Gandalf's sword, is Turgon's sword. Um, and, uh, and one of, and the sword of one of his captains, possibly Ichthelion, uh, is Orchrist. So, um, those are the, those swords are, you know, th- these, these are from Gondolin itself. And so when Bilbo is sitting there for the first time, when he draws Sting for the first time, of course, it's not named Sting yet, when he draws his sword for the first time in the goblin tunnels and he realizes that it's an elvish blade and that he's, car- you know, he, it feels rather splendid to think that he is carrying a sword out of Gondolin. Um, so yeah, it, it is, it is uh, uh, it is legendary, uh, and and just becomes uh, <laughs> within the mythical within the mythic world of the Lord of the Rings. Gondolin is already a mythic story, uh, and it, it, it's clear how that uh, how that operates. Um, but uh, anyway, um, so so now I'm kind of rambling on about Gondolin. Um, but uh, does anyone else have any other thoughts about uh, about about Turgon? What do you make of uh, the exchange? Uh, we might as well jump ahead to this extent. Uh, that is to the exchange between Turgon and Aeol uh, at the end, when Aeol uh, has his sort of uh, uh, you know defiant speech to Turgon, and then Turgon makes his solemn proclamation. Um, 
at the end, not the one where he's condemned to death, but his, uh, uh, his, his rejoinder. It's worth, actually, it's worth reading. Let's, uh, let's read some bits here tonight. Let's see. Okay, page 137, we're looking at. Um, okay. Aeol says, I acknowledge not your law. No right have you or any of your kin in this land to seize realms or to set bounds either here or there. This is the land of the Teleri, to which you bring war and all unquiet, dealing ever proudly and unjustly. I care nothing for your secrets, and I came not to spy upon you, but to claim my own, my wife and my son. Yet if in Arathel your sister you have some claim, then let her remain. Let the bird go back to the cage, where soon she will sicken again as she sickened before, but not so Myglin. My son you shall not withhold from me. Come, Myglin, son of Aeol, your father commands you. Leave the house of his enemies and the slayers of his kin, or be accursed. But Myglin answered nothing. I love that last sentence. Then Turgon sat in his high seat, holding his staff of doom, and in a stern voice spoke, I will not debate with you, Dark Elf. By the swords of the Noldor alone are your sunless woods defended. Your freedom to wander there wild you owe to my kin, and but for them long since you would have labored in thraldom in the pits of Angband. And here I am king, and whether you will it or will it not, my doom is law. This choice only is given to you, to abide here or to die here and so also for your son. Now, um, what do you make of this? Let's, uh, as, I, as, I would, as I would say in my, in my classes, let's do some analysis here. Tell me what you find interesting there. This is, you know, in, in some ways, this exchange really brings to the fore a bunch of the things that we were looking at in the last couple weeks, certainly about uh, uh, Sindar-Noldor relations here in Beleriand. What do you think? Laura? Well, first of all, I want to say that I love Turgon's speech. I just think it's awesome. And uh, Martin Shaw, I, I know he screws up the pronunciation, but uh, he does a great job on this speech. It just sends chills up my spine to uh, to listen to him uh, to him say this. Oh, I agree. But, um, yeah. But I, I think Turgon, you know, and, and I love the speech, too. I just think it's uh, the best thing that Turgon ever says. I, I just really like this, but um, it does kind of show the arrogance a little bit of the of the Noldor. Um, by the swords of the Noldor alone are your sunless woods defended. Um, it doesn't sound like they're really defending his woods in particular over mm-hmm. there. Um, I guess they're sort of in the in the way of Morgoth, but it's it's not like they've really done much to defend him. Um, and uh, you know, you, you see this giant clash of wills. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's like a, a nifty mix of, uh, of, uh, uh, it's like he's insulting him at the same time, right? Your sunless woods, he, 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 uh, he throws in there as well. Well, that's the other thing that's interesting. Um, Aeol seems to be a hermit, more or less, but it seems like everybody knows exactly what's going on, which kind of puzzles me in this chapter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, let's 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 keep uh, keep hearing from people. Joe, what do you think? I don't know. This is going to focus a bit more on Turgon, really, and how he's changed. Like when you think back uh, before he even went to Gondolin, like um, people kind of gave him the rule out on the coast, and uh, he kind of accepted it, but he didn't really claim it. And then when it comes to Gondolin, it's like he's changed quite a bit. And uh, I just you can really see that here, like uh, just like the pride that he has, and and what he's saying, and uh. 
Oh, I mean, it's, I'd say it's a good thing and a bad thing, probably, because um, he was the first one who really got along with everyone else. He was the first one that brought about the mingling of like uh, the Sindar and everybody else. Yeah. And now, uh, and now, now they're clashing hardcore, and I think that involves his pride, but also the pride of Ale. So I don't. Know, I just thought that was interesting how you saw the transformation there, but then also how Ale was unwilling to cooperate. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I- I'm not sure. I'm not sure I would even say transformation, but I agree with you. At the very least, we're seeing the other side. Uh, and because you're right to say, so like three weeks ago when we were uh, talking about the description of Turgon and and uh, and his people over in Nevrost, and or maybe that was two weeks ago, uh, and their uh, first move to Gondolin. Um, you're right. What we were emphasizing there was his wisdom and, and his humility. You know that he 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 was the one who most quickly and most completely mingled with the Sindar. Um, and he's, but I, but I don't think this is necessarily him changing so much as this is this, we didn't see this side of Turgon before. Uh, but I'm not sure that it's completely, uh, that it's completely contrary uh, to what we saw in him, in him otherwise. Chris, what are you thinking? There we go. Uh, I guess I just looked at it a, a little bit differently. Um, first of all, uh, Turgon offers the ale a hand of friendship and pretty much gets spat on in return, at least um, figuratively. And so I, I guess I don't blame Turgon for being a little bit, um, I mean, it comes across as proud. I kind of agree with that, but I, I think it's um, maybe a little understandable. Plus the fact he's just kind of stating the facts um, at this time, you know, you're, you know, we're here. This is, this is, whether you like it or not, this is my kingdom and my word is law. Plus the fact Ale seems to be the exception as far as the Teleri goes. I think most of the other Teleri seem to be, if, if not delighted, at least, uh, um, acknowledge the, the benefit they get of the Noldor being there and, you know, they are protecting them whether they're actively doing it just for the Teleri or not, but that's the, the, the fact of it is that, um, the Teleri's lands are being protected by the Noldor. Uh, right, that's right. My, that's my two cents. No, I, I, I think that's true. I mean, there is a kind of irony, right? We're told, uh, we're told when we're introduced to Ale that he, he, he used to live in Doriath, but when, when Melian set the girdle up, he moved out because he didn't want to be living within the girdle of Melian. He didn't like that. He wanted to be on his own. He wanted to be a free agent. He wanted to be independent and clearly not beholden to anybody. Um, now, who and. Does that remind us of as far as someone wanting to be totally alone and cut off from everybody else. It seems like the others have gone down that road and usually had not to, to good result. Yeah, yeah, no, it's true. I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's easy to see Ale fitting part of a pattern here, right? Just like, just like Feanor, just like Melkor, just like Saruman. Just, yeah, I mean, there's, there, are, uh, uh, just like Smeagol. Um, yeah, there's, uh, there's, the, Whenever people separate themselves and want to distance themselves like that, it often does go bad. Um, but yeah, so, and, uh, but 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 I was saying sort of I think that the irony, right? He wants to be on his own. He wants to be independent. He wants to set up on his own and be beholden to no one. And yet, the Turgon is making this point, which which, as you say, is true. You know, you're over there setting up on your own and saying, I am my own master and I am, you know, I have my own little realm here uh, because the Noldor are keeping the orcs back. A, beat off the orcs that they found there and B, are, it's, it's behind the line of the siege. You know, they have, they have the leaguer around, 
uh, around uh, Morgoth in the north. So, so yeah, I mean, you're right. I mean, of course, it's not, it's not, and I don't even think Turgon is claiming like we are doing all of this for your benefit, and you're so ungrateful. Um, they're not doing it for his benefit in particular, but it is a fact that if it were not for the Noldor, the orcs would have already overrun him, and it doesn't look like he could stop them. At least he couldn't stop them the first time. Um, so I, th- I think that there is a kind of irony and that he seems to be in a sense genuinely fooling himself when he thinks that he is independent and that the Noldor are nothing but a nuisance, uh, and, uh, and worse than a nuisance. Uh, that's a, that's a rather, uh, slighting term to use to paraphrase his accusation. Um, uh, well, I, think I mean, you're right. He's kind of living in a, a little bit of a uh, unrealistic dream world. Yeah. He's got his little realm in his woods, and um, he doesn't seem to see the the big picture of what's really going on. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it makes me think of uh, it makes me think of the passages in the Council of Elrond when uh, when when people talk about how you know, like when when Boromir talks about how people don't appreciate what what Gondor is doing on the front lines to keep back the enemy, and by their by their valor are all their lands protected, and um, and Aragorn, you know, says, well, you know, the same is true about the Rangers, and you know, he he brings up you know, Butterbur and the people of Bree and how they're shielded from these things by the Rangers. And, um, and, you know, so it's, it's almost like, you know, the, the, the Bree people or the Shire folk rising up and saying, well, you know, like we are independent, we don't need you. And of course that's kind of what they're doing, right? That's the point that Aragorn is making. Like they, you know, countrymen give us scornful names. Um, I, you know, and, and, uh, you know, th- that they are not just, not just unappreciated. Now, I'm not trying to say exactly that the Noldor are in the same position as the Rangers here, because there is a a self-consciously self-sacrificial uh, uh, sort of altruistic action on the part of the Rangers, which the Noldor are not doing in the same way. But uh, but again, but but I think the parallel is kind of interesting that he is he's kind of oblivious, like. The people in in Bree and in the Shire are oblivious to the danger that they would be in if they weren't protected, but he's much more m- malevolently oblivious. Uh, and, and you know what? He's in a position. He, I mean, he's obviously intelligent. He he should. I mean, he should kind of in a position to know better. I mean, he he totally uh, twists everything, and maybe that's a part of his being alone and. Um, you know, self-centered, that he, he kind of twists the logic of uh, of what's going on, or his interpretation of what's going on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I agree. You know, and one of the one of the things I would notice in passing, you know, exchanges like this, it's something that I that I always find really interesting about Tolkien's Tolkien's dialogue and Tolkien's stories in moments like this. Um, he is so good at sort of showing both sides, because uh, you know you look at what Aeol says, and you can you can totally see. I mean, yeah, okay, he's a jerk, but you can see he's got points. You know, it's it's at least easy to sort of imagine yourself into his position and saying, you know, I can really see how he would look at it that way. Um, and then, of course, then Turgon speaks, and you're like, yeah, and I can see how he would look at it that way too. Um, he is, I think, t- uh, Tolkien is really good at sort of sh- uh, really showing and and kind of doing justice to both sides of an argument um mike you've wanted to 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 chip into this here for a while too i I agree i think that there are scenes that if you were going to try and make a silmarillion movie as a director you would 
put a check mark here and say, okay, I can see how this one would be filmed. I very much like Turgan standing and addressing Aeol at the beginning of this exchange, hand extended, and then afterwards he sits back down and he's clutching his staff of doom. And I imagine him sort of, you know, squeezing it with greater and greater frustration as he's trying to respond to what Aeol is saying. So I, I like the detail of him sitting back down, putting his hand down, and then grabbing his that staff and then speaking in his stern voice. I also very much like Aeol addressing Turgan and at the end of his uh, statement, basically turning to his son and saying, you've got to come back with me. And what this scene for me is really about is these two figures, Aeol and Turgan, fighting over Myglin. And Aeol attempts to convince Myglin to come back. And Turgan, at the end of his statement, rebuts that and, st and says back to Aeol, I'm the king here, and I'm going to pass judgment not only on you, but on your son as well. So I, I, I like the, the parallel of Aeol making his statement to Myglin, and then Turgan rebutting that, that statement about the son and who has authority over the son. And if you were filming this, it would be, you know, Aeol standing in front of a seated Turgan, both of them arguing to each other, but ultimately arguing over Myglin in the middle. Yeah, yeah. No, I... I... And and there, I think, is the place for me that jumps out most um, as far as looking at the difference in, in perspective, the difference in attitude, the difference in character between Aeol and Turgan here um, is that that possessiveness. Um, I mean, I, I when I was reading it, I couldn't help but emphasize because I think they, they really stand out to me. But to claim my own, my wife and my son, those possessive pronouns, um, my son, you shall not withhold from me. Um, he is claiming this absolute authority. My son and my wife, they are my possessions. And then, but he, then he sort of concedes, well, my wife is also your sister. So you have a, so she's kind of half yours and half mine. So whatever, I'll concede that. But, uh, but this is, um, but this is, but, but Myglin is, is completely mine. And Turgan's response is to give Aeol a choice. And to give Myglin a choice, right? The choice, this choice only is given to you, and so also for your son. And there's, there's kind of contained there, it seems to me, uh, a, a fairly gentle rebuke of Aeol's attitude. Like, you know, your son here is not your possession. He has a choice to make too. And, and as king, I am going to give him a choice and let him make up his own mind. Um, and of course, Aeol's final move, you can see that's when he goes to kill Myglin, um, with his javelin in the next paragraph at the, at the top of the next page. Again, you can see the same emphasis. The second choice I take, and for my son also, you shall not hold what is mine, uh, is sort of the ultimate statement of this this completely selfish and self-centered possessiveness, I will destroy them rather than see, I will destroy him rather than see anyone else possess him. Like Myglin is this completely passive um, object that, that he owns. It's um, I think it's pretty, it's pretty remarkable. Jack. Yeah, I think you're uh, absolutely right when you're saying that Tolkien can see uh, both sides of an argument and uh, have good points there. Because um, I can kind of see Turgon as being representing that big G government that that uh, Tolkien did not like, and and uh, Hale, you know, being the the anarchist, the you know, the individualist uh, that didn't want or need a boss ruling over him, and 
I don't think either of them necessarily are right or see the big picture, but Tolkien is able to uh, present both sides of, of the argument through these characters. And another point I wanted to make quickly is that I can't help but feel that Eo represents the past of elves um, in the sense that he's the dark elf. And since when, when is it, why is it an insult for an, for an elf to be living in a sunless woods? Didn't all elves used, used to live in a sunless woods? <laughs> <laughs> That's a really great point. I had I, I hadn't really ever thought about that line in that way, of course. But it's like, hey, man, you know, uh, it's like get 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 with the times. It's it's we're in the era of the sun now, you know, like that. But yeah, exactly. Uh, the the darkness of Aeol, his connection with um, sunlessness is not necessarily, not intrinsically a bad thing. I mean, you know, elves and the starlight. That was the point, right? Um, so, uh, now, I mean, at the same time, and we have to be a little bit careful, I, I mean, of course, no other good guys cower away from the sun. Uh, I mean, Morgoth and his creatures cower away from the sun. It's not that Aeol cowers away. It's not, it's not like he's like an orc. It's not like he can't operate by the sun or is damaged by the sun or uh or weakened by the sun he just doesn't like it and he prefers to be abroad at night and he prefers the sunless woods uh as turgon calls them um but so yeah it's it, to me it's, he's kind of ambiguously uh that 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 i think is is at least potentially uh, well, not ambiguous. I, I think I mean ambivalent, uh, kind of, kind of, uh, sort of signal about him. And uh, this sort of leads me to, uh, you know, a comment that I'd like to make when he's called a dark elf. Um, that's a really, uh, it's, it's a peculiar kind of name and something that I think can lead to a lot of confusion because that word is used in several different senses both in Tolkien and without. And I want to be careful um, when we think about sort of what it means when we call, uh, what it means when we call Aeol uh, a dark elf. Um, for one thing, sometimes you'll remember that the, uh, well, the elves are divided into two basic categories, the more, well, two of the basic categories into which they're, one way in which to divide the elves uh, is into the categories of Moraquendi and Calaquendi, the elves of the darkness and the elves of the light. So in that sense, dark elves are any of the elves who didn't make it over to Valinor during the time of the trees. So all of the Sindar are in that sense, dark elves. Um, sometimes the Avari who did not come west at all to Valinor, who never set out on the journey, are called Dark Elves. Um, but that's clearly not uh, not the sense in which Dark Elf is being used here. Um, the way in which that 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 name is kind of thrown at him, and we see it thrown at him twice by two very different characters. By Turgon, of course, in that speech that, that I read, I will not debate with you, Dark Elf, but also in exactly the same tone by Kurufin in the scene that Matt wants to read, which I want to do a little bit later. What errand have you, Dark Elf, in my lands? Um, and now Kurufin is a, is a serious jerk, possibly only out-jerked by Karinthir among all of the sons of, of, of Feanor. Um, and Turgon, of course, is wise and good and everything else. And yet both of them address him in that same way, dark elf, like that is in itself an insult. And they seem, of course, um, 
<laughs> Sorry, I just saw Matt's Mike's comment. No, we are not entitling this episode that. Um, <laughs> but anyway, um, uh, uh, yeah. So, so I, clearly they are they are they're connecting Aeol with darkness, sort of moral darkness. You know that they are they are saying that he is uh, sort of. Uh, sketchy in this way, and this sort of leads me to one of the other things that I wanted to say about that. Um, one of the things that really muddies the waters is the fact that in a lot of other sort of fantasy worlds, uh, or and especially in various role-playing systems that have been derived uh, directly or indirectly from Tolkien's works, uh, you get separate evil species of elves like Drow and things, uh, which are dark, which are dark-skinned and are called dark elves, both because they're physically darker and because they're evil and usually live underground. And uh, that, of course, is just not reflected in Tolkien. There are no evil races of elves uh, in Tolkien, so there are no dark elves in that way. And Aeol is the closest thing we have to some, to to an elf who is evil and who is connected with, who is called dark elf and connected with evil in that way. But he's not... You know, he's, he's just, he's not that different. Um, he's got some issues. He's got some hangups, but you know, he's not the only one with hangups. Feanor had some issues. Kurifin has some issues. Uh, and we'll see those come out a little bit later. Um, so, uh, and of course his son Maeglin is gonna, is gonna get himself into trouble. But, um, uh, but anyway, so as I said, Dark Elf, it can just sound like that means he's evil, but it doesn't necessarily mean that. I think it's sort of tends to be used in in a sort of a comparatively uh neutral way in this like he's like he's an elf who is in the darkness but with him in particular it is clear that there is a moral darkness associated with him as well um jack did you have something else you wanted to add here um uh, yeah just one thing is that i think tolkien sometimes gets uh unjustly criticized for everything just being black and white and I don't think that's true. And I think this is one of those passages where, where, where things are kind of gray. Yeah. No. I actually I think that that's a, um, I think that that's a really good point. Uh, and this is a really good moment. Uh, it just th- this whole exchange between between Turgon and Aeol, um, and the way that you really can see both sides of it. And even the guy who is clearly the bad guy, and the guy who's clearly the good guy, the guy who's clearly the bad guy, you can look and say, well, you know, he's kind of got an argument in some ways. Um, and the guy who is clearly the good guy, you look at him and be like, oh, you can see this guy's, you know, there are some, there are some issues here. Um, yeah, that's, that's, uh, I, I think that that's that's really definitely true. It's kind of rare, actually, in Tolkien's works to have, uh, you know, this sort of unambiguous, shining, resplendent, good character. Especially, there are some characters who are pretty unambiguously evil, um, but it's it's much more unusual. Uh, and of course, even there, you know, you'll still get reminders like Elrond's reminder in the, reminder in the Council of Elrond um, that, you know, nothing is evil in the beginning. Even Sauron was not so. Um, but, uh, but yet certainly with the good guys, um, there are very few good guys who have no hangups, who have no moments, uh, who have no issues. And in the Silmarillion, even more so, I think, uh, than in the Lord of the Rings. Um, but, uh, um, but, but yeah, no good. I think that that's, um, that's, I'm, I'm really glad that you brought that up because I, I agree. And I think that that's, that's, that's really an important thing. Um, an important misperception, I think, um, 
of Tolkien's works. Dave, you were mentioning before that you were. Uh, did, would you still like to make a defense of uh, of some of Aol's comments here? I think we haven't quite done justice to it. I know in the uh, in the text chat you were uh, sort of met, you were you were supporting Aol uh, and his initial claims there. You want to uh, you want to you want to defend the Dark Elf here? Sure, why not? I'm a, I find him just to be sort of a tragic character. Um, it's hard to say he's the good guy here. He, he did kidnap um, Turgon's sister, which was which was pretty crappy. Um, and he's pretty awful about like he doesn't doesn't exactly. I mean, I'm projecting my modern mores onto this, but he he doesn't appear to treat her or his son particularly well. He's not a horrible guy. Um, on the other hand, I just, you know, I feel bad for him because, uh, or I find him to be a tragic character because I sort of, that, that of course, this could be my own personal biases, but the, the, the idea that, that there's, the Noldor has sort of come in to this land that other people lived in for a long time and uh, implanted themselves and set up little kingdoms and drawn up boundaries and then decided that they get to make the rules and, and conducted themselves in sort of a very sort of haughty way is, uh, is annoying to say the least, and, and you, you sort of feel for Aeol that his his freedom and his liberty are being um, taken away from him because of, by the by the um, uh, by the Turgon and by the elves of Gondolin. Now nobody's told him to sneak in there, uh, but they didn't. It's not like there was sort of a general warning, like "Hey, don't come in here if you want to come out again." <laughs> Um, so uh, I think it's just an incredibly nuanced and complicated situation. Because on the other hand, you understand why Turgon's doing it, and it's not like he went to, it's not like he went over to Aeol's home and imposed himself there. I mean, he picked a place nobody else was living, nobody else wanted to live, and he drew up, you know, he built it up and he made his own rules. Uh, and so, you know, I, it's sort of like, like, um, like they say about Theoden, a king will have his own way in his own court. But still, I, so I'm not saying that he should have let Aeol go away, uh, leave, um, because he has, obviously he has reasons for what he does. I'm not saying Aeol's even a particularly sympathetic guy, but I think he's a tragic guy. Like the end that he meets is pretty awful. The decisions that he makes are pretty awful. The situation that he found him in was pretty awful. Uh, and so it's just kind of tragic. And, and at the end of the day, I don't find Turgon to be, he's not conducting himself in a particularly heroic way. And, um, um, in the end, everything that he's built up gets destroyed. And where does his sword end up? Well, it ends up in the treasure of a bunch of trolls. So, I don't know. I don't think there's a lot of particularly heroic individuals in this um, uh, set of events, other than ultimately, uh, like people like Glorfindel and Hurin and Hur and Tur. Um, Turgon is kind of I don't know. He, he's a very mixed character at this point. I'm not saying he's a bad guy, but uh, I, I certainly can see Aeol's point of view. Yeah, no, I mean, two things quickly that I would that I would comment on, or just or sort of emphasize, because I, I that I think are really important. That first, 
There is, I, I think that the thing to me which most undermines Ale's position, if he were called, you know, say before the Sons of Feanor, uh, for instance, and he were there making his protest about, you know, the imperialism of the Noldor, you know, he'd have a little bit more of a point, especially since the Sons of Feanor are mostly jerks. But he, you know, talking to, you know, saying exactly the things that he says to Turgon, of all people, you know, that, that, you know, you have no right or any of your kin to seize lands or realms or to set bounds here or there. He's not set arbitrary. I mean, he's, he, he, of all of the Noldor, Turgon is least guilty of this, right? I mean, he's the one who embraced the Teleri and the Teleri embraced him. And then he moved to a completely unoccupied, indeed, wholly undiscovered land and built a city there. Um, if there's anybody who is displacing nobody, it's Turkin, right? So, uh, so there's, the, there is, there is a kind of irony there. Um, but I also, I, I mean, I agree with you about the tragedy, uh, of, of Ale that he is in a sense a tragic character, especially since we can see he, he has a certain degree of stature. He, he is a powerful figure. There is, he has real potential. Uh, real potential to be good, really potential, real potential to do great things. Um, we will find he, he is, uh, he is a really great smith. He's one of the legendary smiths. Um, he's the one who forges the black sword, which is going to be, uh, such a prominent character in the story of Turin Turambar. Um, He's, he's, uh, and, and even, you know, the other thing that I would point to that we haven't mentioned at all is his connection with the dwarves, which I think is really interesting. And I think is, 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 is one of the, one of the kind of, in a sense, possibly most attractive things about Ale. But the thing that I would qualify, the way that I would qualify, uh, Dave, your point about his, his, the tragedy of his character is that his tragedy is also self-imposed. That is, he's not, marginalized he's not being forced into anything he is marginalizing himself he is putting he is sort of re- restricting himself if he is a you know a person of great power and of great potential who is going bad or going wrong or going to waste it's also kind of his fault and we see again like saruman like uh you know like feanor like others of great uh gifts and of great poss- you know great potential who just don't make good choices with that there is something tragic in that just as you know we recall the scene of the valar uh you know manway weeping over over the marring of feanor um, you know, almost as much as, 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 as for the, the darkening of Valinor and the, and the destruction of the trees. Um, and I think that, you know, we can see, we can see, you know, there is an aspect of that with Aeol, but with Aeol, as with Feanor, it doesn't mean it isn't his fault. Um, uh, uh, Jordan, I think you want to, uh, reply to Dave, I'm guessing? Yes, I absolutely do. First <laughs> of all, when Dave says that he doesn't treat his son very well, I'd call attempted murder a little bit worse than not very well. I'd say he's pretty awful to his son and tells him he can't leave along with the wife and they have to sneak away. Second of all, Aeol is warned that if he seeks after them, he won't come home. So it's not like, you know, he just goes into Gondolin and then is like, oh no, I'm not going to make it out. He knows going in, he's not coming out of there alive, but does it anyway. 
Third of all, Turgon is completely right. His his uh, land doesn't exist without the Noldor keeping the leaguer of, of uh, uh, Morgoth, so he has no right to come in and demand things of Turgon in the Hidden Kingdom, and it's absolutely Turgon's right to have laws that say you cannot leave because clearly Aeol is completely completely unstable, and if he does leave, Morgoth's gonna find Gondolin. 100% Turgon, absolutely. <laughs> uh, certainly make some good points there. Uh, I mean, there's no question that I, I think it's hard to disagree with the fact that letting Aeol go is kind of not an option here. I mean, talk about somebody who's not going to be need, who's not who's not going to need to be asked twice uh, to 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 betray Gondolin. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, well, yeah. so so that's why I would say that um, uh, it's kind of a tragedy of circumstances, as it were. Uh, you know what I mean? Like, and and he's certainly right. The fact that Aeol decides at the end. Not just that, like, okay, fine, kill me, but that he attempts to kill, kill like his own son. I mean, that's pretty awful. It, that that he, you're right about that, Jordan. In the end, he makes the wrong decision, uh, and he gets what he deserves. Uh, the the fact that he would choose to kill his own son rather than like let his own son stay if his son wants to, that's pretty obviously wrong. There, there's really that's indefensible. It's indefensible. Um, but, uh, it's just sort of, the tragedy is the manner with which the elves treat each other here. The, the fact that Ael would come in and make demands, and then the fact that Turgon, like, doesn't seem terribly sympathetic to the fact that, gee, Ael probably wouldn't be too happy being penned up here. I mean, his own sister wanted to leave Gondolin, uh, for God's sake. Uh, and maybe just this idea that no one ever leaves was just untenable to begin with. And of course it turned out to be, because after all, who is it that ends up screwing them over? That's right, Maglin. And so maybe Gondolin was just doomed to fall apart from the very, you know, it, it ultimately. And and to some extent, um, this sort of policy. It's not to say that it's not to say Turgon's policy here with with Ale is wrong. That he that he should have let him leave. But ultimately, Turgon's sort of idea that that somehow he can keep Gondolin a secret, somehow that he can preserve it, fails. And and sort of his unwillingness to accept um, that that's true is what ends up allowing Gondolin to be destroyed. And so maybe it was just a bad policy to begin with, um, even if he does have the right. I'm not convinced he has the right to do that, to impede uh, Ale's liberty here, but even if he does, it ends up failing and the whole thing falls apart and blows up and they're totally unprepared for an invasion because they never expected anyone would be able to leave. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I, Joe, you wanted to you wanted to bring a different angle in here. Yeah, and uh, I want to add a disclaimer. I'm much more on the uh, Jordan side on this, but <laughs> so this isn't really a defense of a <laughs> of anybody. But um, it just seems like c- couldn't you say the curse is working here? And I'm gonna connect this with what Dave said. There's always choices that can be made. I mean, say uh, Maglin never betrayed anybody. Well, then you know. Gondolin would have lasted longer, but the beautiful things wouldn't have come, like a Eren deal, like getting the Silmaril and doing all that wonderful stuff. So, anyway, um, oh, this is a disaster. But, uh, <laughs> well, you, you were talking about the curse and the connection between the curse and choices. Yeah. Because um, okay, well, I, I, I was going to add on to it with what Dave said, so now I'm just going to go back to what I was saying. Um, basically, I think that the curse was acting 
acting on him somewhat, but then again, his own choices came into effect. Because, I mean, the Curse of the Noldor is ultimately going to drive things, it seems, but, I mean, as you see with other examples throughout the Silmarillion, I mean, it's always people just making bad decisions also that helps drive that. And, uh, I mean, so it's not really a defense of him, but... I mean, you can tell that there's other forces acting here as well. I agree. You know, and that I think is, is one of the really interesting things to think about here. Cause on the one hand, you can look at this story and you can see the whole thing. This is a series of choices that people have made and the stuff that happens, the bad stuff that happens, um, is all of it the consequences of bad choices that people made. Uh, you know, Arthel did not act really well. We haven't talked about her much. We'll, I, I want to come back to her in a little bit. Um, you know, and then we've got Maeglin making some dubious choices, and we've got Ao making some pretty bad choices, and we've got Turgon acting in ways which not everyone's entirely approving of here at the end. Um, and yet... At the same time, you know, again, coming back to one of the things that Dave was saying, we have this overall sense of, you know, like when you kind of step back and look at it, even though you can see point by point all of the individual choices that are being made and how each thing follows from the other, when you step back and look at this whole situation, it's really easy to see, man, yeah, look at the Curse of Mandos at work here. Um, you see how this, because of course, one of the things, one of the primary things that Aeol cites is not just the imperialism of the Noldor, but he brings up the kinslaying. You know, he is big on the, uh, you know, he, he's a very, very, very pro-Tilary, uh, you know, anti-Sons of Feanor, uh, really bent out of shape still about the kinslaying kind of perspective here. And again, and that goes straight back to the curse of the Noldor. Now there will be division. Now you will not be able to trust each other. And Aeol is so antagonistic to Turgon. Because of the kinslaying, but also, uh, you know, Turgon is wise not to trust him. And again, remember, not being able to trust each other for fear of of treachery was exactly what the Curse of Mandos was about. Um, so I think it's really cool to see the way these things these things all work together. Um, I think I mentioned once before when we were talking about the Aino Windaway that I think that Tolkien's depiction of creation in the Aino Windaway is one of the most elegant literary treatments of the way that pre that predestination and free will work together. That you have the providential plan of God uh, being worked out through the individual choices of of the the free moral agents, and that the moral agents are genuinely free, and yet the plan being formed is God's plan. Like that's you know that that's a that's an old medieval idea. That is the idea that those two things operate at the same time. Um, and as, as I said a long time ago, I think that we can see Tolkien articulating that. But at the same time, I think you can see it in moments like this, too. Um, and I think it's pretty, I, I, I think that's pretty cool. Um, Laura, go ahead. Yeah, I'm sorry if somebody has already said this, but it just struck me sort of the parallels between um, Aeol and Turgon in uh Oh, what's her name? I can't remember her name now. Now I forget it. Ered Hell. Is that how you say it? Arathel, yeah. The DH is the Ar voiced the. So, yeah. Arathel, okay. yeah. Uh, when Arathel comes to, to Ael's little, little country, he keeps her there and he doesn't let her leave. Um, in the way he set up his own little small version of, of Gondolin, he's, he's trying to, uh, stay in control. He's trying to, sense out um, not only the Noldor and the orcs and, you know, everything that 
threatens him in sort of a, a petty way compared to what Turgon is doing. But in, in a way, it's, it's parallel, too. You know, they both are trying to keep this absolute control over this little area of land. And in the end, it's, it's going to be pointless because it's, it's all going to go. But, but for the time they have, they both want to um, keep that control. And then when Aeol uh, finds out where his wife and son have gone, and finds they're under the control of somebody with an even bigger land than, than he's got. Um, it's, it's just ironic that, um, you know, Turgon uh, wants to keep uh, Arathel and, and Maeglin in uh, Gondolin just the same way that Aeol wanted to keep them there in his little country. Yeah, I think that's a great point. You know, and Laura, that is actually the number one thing that I was thinking. Um, you know, it's every time, every time I read almost any of Tolkien's books, you know, I, I, I feel like I always notice something new and, or sort of think about something from a new angle. And that was totally the one that I was thinking of this time in reading this chapter. That is the parallel. And I'd never thought about this at all before. Um, uh, but the parallel between Nan Elmoth, where, where, where Aeol lives, and Gondolin. Um, that you have not only this, this direct parallel, both of them highly insular, uh, no contact with, with anybody else. Um, of course, it's not like Turgon is living by himself. I mean, he's got a whole, whole bunch of people in there with him. But anyway, this, 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 this isolated group, Aeol isn't alone either. He's got servants and people living with him, and he hangs out with dwarves. But, but anyway, but but they're isolated, and yet they're also opposites, right? You have the city of shining light, and you have the you know the house of darkness in the middle of the sunless woods. Um, so you know, so they're they're both parallel and they're opposite. But you know, when and and certainly, Aeol sounds kind of hypocritical when he's like, "Who are you to tell me I can't leave?" And you know, one could say, like, you know, if I were Mygwin, I'd be tempted to say the same thing. Yeah, who are you to say that I can't leave? Like, okay, I mean, yeah, you're my dad and everything, but um, you know, we're you don't you're we're not your chattel, um, and he treats them like his chattel. And I think when we compare, I mean, both of them have pass rules that is both Turgon and Aeol pass rules that the people who come to their house can't leave. I mean, you want to talk about, uh, we, I, 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 you know, saw again before people were talking about, you know, the uh, gondolin as, as like the elf motel that you go in, you know, the elves go in and they can never come out again. It, I, Aeol's house is much more like that. You know, as he leads her by, you know, he's sort of luring her in. It's very much like a trap. He sees her going by and, and thinks she's really attractive. And so he sort of steers her in and, and guides her until she shows up at his house. And then he shows up at the door and is like, Hey, you know, so, uh, and, and, and then won't let her leave. So, uh, it, it forbids her ever to leave again. Um, even to, you know, to, uh, to, I mean, I understand whatever the, 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 he doesn't like the sons of Feanor, but anyway, I, his possessiveness, and I, and I keep coming back to possessiveness here, because when you compare those two rules, that is Aeol, uh, ruling over, um, over his house and Turgon ruling over his realm, and both of them, bringing people in, well, or when people come in, not letting them go again, it, to me, Aeol sounds 
much pettier in comparison. Turgon is wise to do what he does. Um, the only the thing that is protecting Gondolin primarily is its secrecy, and so he is he is setting up this guarded realm, this hidden realm, um, at the advice of Olmo. Remember, this wasn't even his idea. Olmo said, "Build this place, which will be secret from everybody else, and keep it secret." And Olmo guarded them and protected them and shielded them so nobody saw the whole nation of people migrating <laughs> into this place um but uh but at the same but but Aeol has no motivation for not letting people leave other than possessiveness other than you're my wife and you're my son and I'm not going to share you with anybody and you got to do what I say um and and that's I mean he's the one who is the arbitrary tyrant um Turgon you know Aeol is speaking to him like he's a tyrant but even if you think Turgon's a tyrant, he's not an arbitrary tyrant. Um, so I, I think, you know, I, I think that that's, um, that's, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I find that parallel really suggestive when you think about Aeol's house and Turgon's country uh, in parallel with each other. Um, and, uh, you know, if you think if, you know, he, he makes the crack, Aeol makes that crack about, you know, the bird going back to the cage where it sickened before. Um, but, you know, again, if he's right, if they're both cages, uh, at least, boy, that's a serious upgrade going back to the nice cage. I mean, there's you know, that moment when Arathel comes back and her perspective has been rather renewed by hanging out in the dark house of, of, uh, of Aeol for a long time. And she's like, actually, it's kind of nice here. Um, yeah, but, um, Anyway, um, let's, uh, let, let's go back to Aradel, um, because we haven't talked about her much, and, uh, she is, um, she's a pretty, she's a pretty major character, um, here, and I, I mean, I say that just because, you know, she, this is one of the, one of the only times, uh, in the Silmarillion, and not, not the only time, but this is, this is a noteworthy time when we get a prominent female character, uh, acting very independently, um, uh, and, uh, and really sort of striking out on her own. She's not the only one we'll see by any means, but, uh, but she's one of the first ones that we've seen. And John, way back at the beginning, I think was right, uh, to make the connection to Galadriel. We don't see, we don't get, I mean, the, the reference we have to Galadriel's desire, uh, to rule realms at her own will is, is, is very short. Um, you know, and of course we talked about it when we did that chapter, but, um, but I agree there is a kind of that that kind of independent I don't think that her motivation is exactly the same as Goadru here, but certainly that uh the, the the degree of strength and independence that she shows. Um Aravel, we will recall, she is the cousin um of Goadriel, uh their first cousins, and they the two of them is this true? Yeah, they're the only female grandchildren. Of Finway, the two of them. Yeah, yeah, I think that's true. Arthel and Goadriel. Um, so again, so there are several reasons why we could or should uh, should compare them. What do you guys think, Joe? Did you have uh, Arthel thoughts? Yeah, but it's not really on the same note. Like as as you were going, this is kind of branching into something else. So if someone else wants to talk on that, they can. You can just come back to me. Okay, sure. Uh, uh, yeah, Laura. Arathel seems to be somebody who, for an elf anyway, seems to be blown about by the wind. She seems a, a bit capricious. Um, and where it said that she was fearless at one point, I kept thinking 
she's not fearless, she's foolish. I mean, she should know better after all the experiences the elves have had um, that, that the world is dangerous and you don't just go take a, a jaunt and, and uh, you know, um, try to sneak past Morgoth and just because you feel like you need to get out. You know, that, that's kind of how I saw her. I just thought that she was she was kind of fickle, especially compared to the other elves we've seen. Yeah, I mean, it's... It, yeah, I mean, fickle is, uh, fickle's a harsh word, but, but, but I agree. I mean, you, you can see that. I mean, even the way in which she's like, oh, Gondolin, I, you know, I'm so bored here. And then she leaves and she's like, oh, Aeol's house, I'm so bored here. I wish I were back in Gondolin. Um, I mean, it, it, it's certainly easy to think in those terms. Um, and I agree about her foolishness. I mean, it's, it's important to keep in mind. Um, you know, she is not, one might be tempted to think of Arathel as a, as a, you know, like a sheltered person, you know, she, oh, she's like, you know, she lives in Gondolin. She doesn't know the world. She knows the world. She crossed the Helcaraxa, of course. I mean, she was, she was, she was there. She endured, you know, one of the greatest, uh, you know, and most, most bitter trials ever endured by the elves. So, uh, she's no, <laughs> she's she's no sheltered and naive, uh, 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 you know, girl here um you know she's she, you know we should certainly shouldn't be imagining her as like you know a young teenager or something like that i mean it's um uh, yeah yeah but um uh, but but i agree i mean foolishness it's 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 it, she certainly does seem kind of foolish mike choose a slightly different adjective instead of uh foolish i would choose uh restless and that's an adjective that's ascribed to her in this chapter. And I think one of the, you know, morals of the chapter, going back to what we touched on, is when you have immortal beings like elves, some of them will be restless, like this character. And when you put them in situations where they're walled in, that's not sustainable. Yeah, and, you know, I, 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 I have to think, to some extent, it's hard not to see Arathel and her restlessness as at least a little bit... Well, if not an indictment of Gondolin, at least a question mark, right? Um, I mean, we were already looking last time at, you know, Gondolin and Turgon's motivations for Gondolin and how he sets up Gondolin and it's, it's backwards looking and it's, um, you know, memorial of, you know, it's, it's little, you know, it's, it, it, it's role as a memory of Tyrion upon Tuna. But he, you know, and so there, there are questions there. Like, is that is that totally okay? You know, is there something? You know, is there something questionable? Is 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 this really an entirely good idea? And I think Aravel kind of suggests, you know, it's certainly prudent to live in there and to stay in there and not to come out and never to let anybody out. Um, there's no question that that's wise in the sense of being smart, in the sense of being prudent. But yeah, I'm not sure it's in, I, we can see with Arathel, Arathel's desire to see her kinsmen and friends. Um, I mean, on the one hand, it might seem like, oh, look, she has, you know, dodgy friends, you know, and that she, she wants to hang out with Kelgorm and Kurufin. But remember, Fingen was close friends with Mithros too, and that was a great thing. Um, and if we see, um, again, again, it's tempting. I think, one can read Arathel's desire to go and hang out with the, you know, like with the dangerous bad boys on the other side of the mountains as like, you know, a teenage girl rebelling against her parents. And I don't think that that's 
if instead of looking at it that way, we look at it as in some sense, at least potentially, you know, a kind of mini reprise of the friendship which led Fingen to go and rescue Mithros from where he was stapled to the side of Thangorodrim. I mean, that's not a bad thing. And certainly building bonds and the, you know, those bonds of friendship are not, are not bad. And it does, I think, kind of draw, um, it, it does bring Turgon and the whole Gondolin plan into question at least a tiny little bit. You're isolating yourselves. You're disconnecting yourselves from everybody. Um, you are breaking these bonds, these relationships, and you, you are severing them. You're de facto severing them. Um, if we were talking about its being kind of questionable, pretty obviously questionable, the way that Aeol separates himself from the society of the rest of Doriath and from almost everybody's society. Um, if that's kind of sketchy, if that's kind of Saruman-like, well, what about Turgon? I mean, no, he's not doing it for Saruman's motivations. He's not doing it for Aeol's motivations, but he is also isolating himself, and I think that that's not an unambiguously an unambiguously good thing. Again, I'm not saying that it's bad. I'm not saying that, you know, Gondolin is corrupt from the beginning, but I, but there from the beginning we have these these seeds planted, these these sort of question marks planted. Um Mike, did you want to respond uh back again? Just to to add to that, her her nature seems to be re- uh, restless, exploratory. Some of the descriptions seem to be how we've heard men described, yearning to wander free, restless looking to ride further abroad, seeking for new paths, untrodden untrodden glades. So if you, you know, certain elves will have that character. And if you have a fortress city, those two ideas are going to come into conflict. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I agree. I mean, the... Uh, and again, you think even even back to the question marks we were talking about about not only Torgan's Gondolin plan, but the Valar's uh, Valinor plan and bringing the elves over there. The elves, their their purpose was to wander freely around Middle Earth, right? So, um, you know, if what the Valar did was not clearly an unambiguously good thing, I think that we can say what Torgan is doing is also not an unambiguously good thing. Um, Chris, go ahead. Yeah, I wanted to get uh, anybody else's impression now and how this might fit into her her personality. Aeol apparently traps her in his in his realm, and he how does it put it? It uh, he took her to wife, and then it says a little later that she was not wholly unwilling. And I, I I'm trying to picture this scenario as far as you know how did that really come about? Did he force her? Did he use his power of his voice like Feanor might, or um, is she a free spirit? And we just thought, well, hey, what the heck? That's not very elf-like, but um, I, I guess I don't quite know what to make of how that might have come about. I was just wondering if, what uh, any, anybody else thought. Yeah, hey, um, trivia question. The place where uh, the place uh, relevant trivia question. The 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 piece of forest where Aeol now has his home. You remember who else? Uh, who else we have met there? What else happened there in that place? Thingol and Melian. Exactly. Uh, That's where Thingol met Melian. So t- there's a kind of there, there's a kind of parallel there where you have yeah. like guy who is marrying up, guy who is wandering, or in this case it's the girl who's wandering in Nan Elmoth, and he sees her and is like, whoa. Now he doesn't have the Thingol experience where he stands there saying like, whoa, for you know centuries or whatever in a you know this sort of suspended animation that Thingol is in, but um, 
and of course his his reaction is very different and you have him in this sort of predator mode um uh, of you know drawing her into the house you know luring and drawing her into his house until he has her there and then keeps her um yeah it does not sound or rather I'll say it a different way it sounds as if Tolkien is not wanting us to imagine this as like a rape like he has trapped her and is taking her by force um but it, but of, again sorry go ahead I was going to say his comment about her not being wholly unwilling kind of seems a, an effort to do that but the way it's the description leading up to it it's hard not to assume rape I guess that's my th- my thinking about it and you're right that following line it it almost doesn't fit anyway go ahead yeah yeah no again the thing that i would emphasize too is there's this there's this kind of funny indirection that he uses tolkien uses in his language it is not said that arathel was wholly unwilling um that's two huge steps removed from saying arathel was willing right we're not saying that arathel was willing we're saying arathel was not wholly unwilling and we're not even just saying Arthel was not wholly unwilling. We're saying it's not said that she's not wholly unwilling. So the the sort of the heaps of negatives um, that are that are that are being placed on this here sort of uh, does certainly convey the fact that she's not in normal. This is not love at first sight. This is not you know a fairy tale romance from Arthel's standpoint. Um, Whereas, of course, Thingol and Melian exactly is a fairy tale romance, right? Um, so, so I mean, you have this. I, I what I what I think is a really interesting, um, interesting contrast between the two of them, um, between those two relationships. But, um, but yeah, as as like what what we're supposed to take about uh, how legit this is, both Turgon. And, um, more gently Turgon and less gently Kurofin talk about how, well, basically that Ale was clearly in the wrong. That what he did, um, in their eyes is more like kidnapping than it is like marriage proposal, right? No, no, f- no customs were followed, um, he has not joined himself to her family. He has merely taken her away from her family and kept her away from her family. Um, and that seems, uh, that seems, uh, a, 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 a sort of a, a dodgy thing. But we've, we've, we, we've wandered here away from, uh, Arathel herself here a bit. Uh, Joe, why don't you go ahead? All right. Well, uh, this is really relating to her act of selflessness when she jumps in front of the spear. Um, that is a really good thing, uh, but um, just the course of events that happen after that, like what it leads to, eventually something very bad happening, happening to Gondolin. I mean, it just—it's interesting how an act of selflessness leads to something really bad happening. Usually, it's the opposite. But then again, I mean, who knows what would have happened if she wouldn't have done that? If she sort of stood there shocked, and I mean, who knows? Maybe she would have ran off crazed and gotten out and told everyone where Gondolin was. Who knows? But uh, it's just, I just thought it was interesting just how all these together, maybe that ties back into the curse, just a course of events that just roll onto each other, play off of each other. Um, I just, because you just don't see that very often. How, I mean, it, well, of course, you wouldn't know it unless you've read the book the rest of the way either, so maybe I'm yeah. too deeply into it. But Well, I no, I mean, I, but I agree. I do think that that's, uh, that that is an important point. It is interesting that 
certainly throwing yourself in front of a javelin aimed at somebody else, and certainly a mother throwing herself uh, in the path of a javelin aimed at her son, that seems like, as you say, that seems like a really unambiguously good action. Um, and yet it is, at the very least, it's really ironic that... Um, that the consequence of this is bad. Uh, you know, that in the end, um, in the end, looking back on it, there, I, I bet are going to be many who would wish that, 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 that Myglin took the spear that day. Um, Yes, uh, Laura, I was thinking exactly what you just typed. Uh, we've talked almost not at all about Michael himself, and we really need to do that uh, before we we <laughs> run out of time here. Um, what do you guys make of of Michael? He, I think, is 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 the description of him is fascinating. His silence, his watching. Um, you know, he is someone who is so obviously thinking much more than he than he says much more than he, uh, than, than, than he actually lets out. Um, uh, but, uh, but, but yeah, Mike, what are you thinking about? Two observations is, uh, are that one, Aeol the father is stooped and crooked from his Smith work. He's bent from, uh, working with ore and iron, but his son, Myglin is described at the end of the chapter as being psychologically crooked or psychologically mm-hmm. bent and i very much like the parallel of the father to the son and the fact that the father you know is, is described as being um, sort of bent up and crooked and twisted physically but the son in idril observing him is described as being sort of crooked on the inside in a in a kind of deviant and dangerous way and i also very much like the fact that he's described as a mind reader who hides his own mind from others yeah 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 no he is um it makes me think of the um uh the the description that treebeard gives of saruman's eyes right um that you know sort of the 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 closed doors behind his eyes um yeah no i think that's 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 a brilliant point, Mike, and uh, I think that we can see it is tempting. Certainly, when you're reading this for the first time, you know, Joe, as you were just recognizing, not knowing for sure exactly what's going to happen later on, um, it might be tempting to look at Mygwin and say, "Oh, he's, uh, you know, he he he's he's inherited some unfortunate bad traits from his dad, but he's like a better version, or maybe he could be like the redemption of Aeol. You know, it's like he has the potential. Now he's going to be raised in Gondolin, in the city of light, instead of the house of darkness. So hooray! Um, you know, he can be, he can fulfill what Aeol failed. You know, he can be like the non-tragic version. But, um, uh, but I think, you know, they, as, 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 as you point out, Mike, we can see in that language, um, not at all that he is in fact that Aeol's crookedness was superficial compared to Mygon's crookedness. Um, and I think that that is pretty, that that is pretty queer. Laura, go ahead. I just want to make an observation that, um, Mygon, um, is both the high kin of the Teleri. He's, he's noble of, from the noble house of the Teleri and the noble house of the Noldor. So he's actually combining these two different elf races, and that's where the, that's where the poison comes from, or this evil that's coming into Gondolin. That's where it comes from. It comes from both the Teleri 
and the Noldor. And I just thought that was kind of an interesting thing. Instead of just, just coming from the Noldor, the Teleri are also brought into this. Yeah, I mean, at the very least, it's ironic, right? I mean, you would think, um, like, in theory, wouldn't he be like the sort of the the poster child of the gondolindrum right i mean this is what this is what the gondolindrum are like you know it's the it's the 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 ultimate blending of uh the ultimate blending of of uh of noldor and teleri um this is going to be great except not really yeah it, it's almost like the fall of feanor or of melkor you know that what could be the best and brightest has the the biggest fall too yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. And when we have, of course, uh, it will be for that, or this is, this will be a really good thing to remember when we get back to the fall of Gondolin later on. Because, of course, the one who is going to be poised against him on the other side is going to be Huor, of course, but also Eärendil, the one who is half elf, half human. Um, so you've got, you know, sort of the one who is going to fulfill the potential of sort of the joining of two kindreds and the one who is failing, uh, but, it, but does kind of by sort of structure have this, um, potential to join, to, to, to be the joining of two kindreds like that. Um, I mean, even thinking, uh, we haven't talked about, uh, Thingle at all. Not that he's much of a character in this, but you see his, his, uh, turning back or by his orders, turning back of Arathel at the border, um, you know there there are uh, there there are bridges to be built here. You know that that would be nice actually um, to help to build those bridges more between the Noldor and Thingol. And yeah, Mygwen could theoretically do. Oh, oh no, wait, he can't. He's stuck in Gondolin now and can't leave anymore. I guess diplomacy not really an option. Oh well, never mind. Um, other thoughts about Mygwen? Notice his first motivation to go to Gondolin. It seems like a good thing at first. Uh, you know, he loves to hear her stories about Gondolin. And again, it sort of it has this really attractive setup, right? Like he's the one who is, who is, you know, we, we, we get these pictures of him. They're just, you know, enthralled by his mom's stories of Gondolin. And so you can see, you know, I talked about Gondolin being this, being this mythic, uh, uh, concept in the third age. You know, you can see to Myglen that it's like a mythic concept already in the first, in the first age when it's barely been built. Uh, and, you know, so it's like, you know, him was, you know, tell me, tell me about Gondolin and the beauty of Gondolin again. Um, and even sort of, you know, the wistfulness of that. Here we are stuck in this dark, gloomy house. Um, you know, tell me about the lights. Tell me about the fountains. Tell me about the gold and silver trees. Um, and it seems like potentially kind of moving and kind of beautiful. Um, but, but what does he like about it? What's his favorite part of the story? Do you remember his favorite part of the story? That uh, there's no heir to Gondolin. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's the that's for him the thing. And my favorite part about all these stories is that I could take over someday. You know, I mean, it's it's yeah. He he, that's crooked. He is crooked. His his even his love and appreciation of things. Um, you know, and again, you can see that when Arthel comes back, and we get in all three of them in Ale and in Mangwen and in Arthel this reaction to being in Gondolin for the first time for the two of them and back in Gondolin uh, for the other. And that is, um, uh, you know, they're all sort of, they're all astonished. You know, they're, they're all three of them, you know, and 
Aravel is thinking like, oh, wow, this is so beautiful. Why did I ever want to leave? Uh, this is so great. Maeglin and Aeol being, you know, like, whoa, this is, this is pretty incredible. And it making Aeol more bitter. Maeglin has a different reaction, right? He's looking around and thinking, you know, and one day all of this could be mine. Uh, Chris? A little bit about his uh, attraction to Idril. Was it all a physical attraction or was it the fact that if he married her, I mean, if it was allowed to marry her, then he would be the legitimate heir of Thingol. I mean, of Turgon, rather. Yeah, I mean, there's... On the one hand, we are told that he has a genuine, like, star-crossed love for her. I mean, when this is... um, um, When this is introduced to us there in that last long paragraph... um, for from his first days in Gondolin, he had borne a grief ever worsening that robbed him of all joy. He loved the beauty of Idril and desired her without hope. Um, so, so he does seem to, you know, he does have this like tragic love thing going on. But, but Chris, there's no question. We know from the beginning that he was motivated that that the lack of an heir thing was what he was really attracted by, and there's no question. Uh, from a purely objective, you know, from a purely Machiavellian standpoint, the right thing to do, the smart thing to do to solidify his political position would be to marry Idril because she is in this, um, you know, she is in this kind of at least potentially ambiguous political place. Does she inherit? She's his only child and she's going to be his only child because his wife is dead. So uh, does she inherit or does it go to Maeglin, his nephew, um, you know, direct child or, 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 or nearest male heir? Where does it go? Well, Hey, you know, uh, solve this problem. Let's, uh, let's get together, you know, and I will marry her and then there can be no question. Then every, you know, I will be his, his nephew and his son-in-law and everything will definitely come to me. And, and again, it's, 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 it's very difficult. Um, it's very difficult to, uh, um, not think about it in those terms. Again, we are told, I, I, we we are told to believe that he actually does love her. You know, has this has this tragic infatuation with her. And but I, I yeah. think both can be true. I mean, I, but it, I, because of his motivations of his whole dream of of Gondolin not having an heir, and then he falls to her. Those those two go hand in hand and can both be true. Yeah, yeah. No, I I, I and, and especially since we get that last. Um, you know, we've had all of this talk about his, his, his plotting and how much, um, you know, how much he wants power and, 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 and how he would really, and, you know, sort of his, 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 his desire to go and to establish himself, uh, as the heir of Gondolin. And therefore, I think it's really impossible not to, uh, not to see not to see uh, this in that context. And we're reminded of that um, later on, you know, at the end of that same paragraph. Um, but as the years passed, still Maeglin watched Idril and waited, and his love turned to darkness in his heart, and he sought the more to have his will in other matters, shirking no toil or burden if he might thereby have power. But this is not a question of like, oh, it's only because he would, if Idril had just said yes, then he would not have gone over to the dark side and he would, uh, you know, he would, he would, uh, you know, he would not be seeking power. He was clearly seeking power before. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, that was obviously motivating him pretty much from the beginning. Joe? I was just going to say, um, you can kind of see how selflessness isn't always a good thing, that motivation behind it affects it because you know as you said is that he didn't shirk any task i mean you know he kind of did whatever to gain power so i mean <clears throat> he was putting himself 
on the line to do this, those things, but strictly for himself. Now, uh, Arathel, I don't think her motivations were quite the same as that, but I just thought it was interesting how you can see the, the two different sides of selflessness, and I guess one really isn't selflessness, but almost. Yeah, well, no, I mean, and, and even just thinking about it in terms of his being, uh, the work that he does, I mean, as you say, the work that he pours into, and it, it's not it's not selfless in the sense that we're told that it, it has selfish motivation. He seeks by doing these things to get power, but at the same time, you know, isn't it interesting, both Aeol and Maeglin, are both smiths, smiths and miners, not just being like dwarfs, but uh, hey, guess what? They're sub-creators again. Aeol, um, certainly, um, even more so than Maeglin, is yet another sub-creator gone bad. Um, he is he is a great smith. He is a great craftsman. Um, and, uh, and again, with him, unlike Feanor, for instance, the his 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 smithcraft his subcreating isn't what seems to lead him astray it's not it has nothing to do with that but again possessiveness um that same kind of possessiveness was certainly um it, it, just thinking about it from 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 that angle is certainly like feanor um and, and again i just don't just doesn't seem to be a coincidence that he also is another is another sub creator an uh, yet another artist um and uh let's see one of you were oh yeah uh brandon you were you quoted my my favorite passage from that Idril loved Maglin not at all right that is uh such an elegant piece of understatement um and that too is interesting Idril we learn very little about Idril here in this chapter unlike her, unlike her aunt Arathel, she is not a major character. She is, uh, uh, you know, she is a kind of, in a sense, a central figure who keeps coming up, but she is not, she, she, we don't, we don't see her doing anything. But this one thing that we see of her, this one action that she does, this sort of negative action, um, well, no, it's a positive action. She sees through Maeglin. Um, and, appears to be the only one who does far more than her dad. Um, we will see Turgon relying on Maeglin and trusting him. Um, and it seems that Idril, uh, uh, yeah, Idril's not fooled uh, and is pretty dubious about it from the beginning. And that shows some real wisdom in her, um, superior wisdom, as I said, even even to her dad's. Mike? This chapter is called Of Maeglin, and I'm wondering... Does he have a single line of dialogue that he actually says in this chapter? <laughs> that is a really great point. He, uh, but Maeglin looking upon his father was silent. Uh, uh, it, but Maeglin answered nothing. He's significantly silent on several occasions. Does that count? Well, I, I, I see where he's significantly silent, but I think it's, <laughs> uh, I, I was just skimming very quickly. I don't think he has a single line of dialogue. And in noticing that, I think that's a pretty cool way to sort of up the ante on his sinister slash silent uh, character or nature, I should say. Yes. He oh, wait, does I have one line. Good. Yeah, I just found it too. Go ahead. Uh, Therefore he said to Arathel, Lady, let us depart while there is time. What hope is there in this wood for you or for me? Here we are held in bondage, and no profit shall I find here. For I have learned all that my father has to teach, or that the Nalgrim will re will reveal to me. Shall we not seek for Gondolin? You shall be my guide, and I will be your guard. Yeah, yeah. His, but I, 
do think that's it. Um, and, and certainly when we get to the crucial moments, when people are giving really memorable speeches, uh, at the end, he doesn't get any. In fact, all we get from him is nothing. Um, and, and even, you know, looking at the two speeches that we were looking at for so long before, that is Aeol's speech and Turgon's speech, um, we were kind of glancing over the fact that the pivot, the pivot point between the two is Maeglin's science, but Maeglin answered nothing. Um, it wasn't Turgon's turn to speak in a sense. Uh, Maeglin might have spoken, might have said something. Here, he does not speak up. Um, on behalf of his father, he does not join his father, nor does he oppose his father. He merely says nothing and lets Turgon answer him. And then when he is explicitly appealed to, um, you know, when, when you know, sort of after when, when he is, he's, he's been attacked and everything, certain, surely now this is, uh, this is, uh, the place for him to give a speech, right? But he doesn't, he doesn't give a speech either. So I guess he he doesn't need to say anything, since as a mind reader, he can read the secrets of hearts beyond the mist of words. Well, yeah, because all giving a speech might do is let on to other people what you're thinking. What's the point of that, right? Um, yeah, no, I, he, yeah, no, I, I do think that it is important, his, uh, his, his conspicuous silence, especially in that last exchange, um, is, is very interesting, though of course it also reminds me of the other time we see Idril doing anything um, in this chapter, and that is she, with Aravel, are moving Turgon to have mercy on Aeol, even after he, you know, does his javelin thing. Um, but the pleas of Idril... So so Idril is not just, you know, against them from the beginning. She, um, she argues that Aeol's life should be spared, but... Uh, but yet, she's obviously not blind, uh, and, uh, not, not blinded to Maeglin's problems, um, or rather the problem that he is. Um, javelin and dart are synonyms, Mike. <laughs> dart, dart is a pretty generic word. Dart doesn't mean a thing that you throw in a pub. Um, dart, uh, the word dart, it can be used as a synonym for javelin, for arrow, for pretty much any pointy thing that flies through the air. So, uh, um, that's, uh, this. not a problem, not a problem. Um, do we, uh, do we want to read our passage, Matt? You wanted, uh, you, you wanted to read the, uh, um, you wanted to read the, uh, the, the, the Aeol and Kurufin exchange. Let's see where we, um, page 135, right? Let's see, uh, Let's see. Let's have let's have two volunteers. Hey, Jordan, you want to do some more reading? Do you want Aeol or Kurofin? Uh, well, I'll take Kurofin. My love for Aeol is not well known. <laughs> Since you love him, not at all. Okay. Uh, yes. <laughs> good. All right. Uh, who wants to be Aeol? No volunteers to read Aeol. Yeah, Dave. Surely you should read Aeol. You are the one who is speaking up for him. I'll do the little narration bits. <laughs> We shall end with a dramatic reading. Page 135. Then Kurufin said to Aeol, What errand have you, dark elf, in my lands? An urgent matter, perhaps, that keeps one so sunshy abroad by day? And Aeol, knowing his peril, restrained the bitter words that arose in his mind. I have learned, Lord Kurufin, he said, that my son and my wife, the white lady of Gondolin, 
have ridden to visit you while I was from home, and it seemed to me fitting that I should join them on this errand. Then Kurufin laughed at Eol, and he said, They might have found their welcome here less warm than they hoped had you accompanied them, but it is no matter, for that was not their errand. It is two days since they passed over the Orisayak, and thence rode swiftly westward. It seems that you would deceive me, unless indeed you yourself have been deceived. And Eol answered, <laughs> Then, Lord, perhaps you will give me leave to go, and discover the truth of this matter. You have my leave, but not my love, said Kurufin. The sooner you depart from my land, the better will it please me. Then Eol mounted his horse, saying, it is good, Lord Kurufin, to find a kinsman thus kindly at need. I will remember it when I return. Then Kurufin looked darkly upon Eol. Do not flaunt the title of your wife before me. He for said. Those who steal the for those who steal the daughters of the Noldor and wet them without gift or leave, do not gain kinship with their kin. I have given you leave to go. Take it and be gone. By the laws of the Eldor, I may not at this time, and this counsel I add, return now to your dwelling in the darkness of Nan Elmoth, for my heart warns me that if you now pursue those who love you no more, never will you return thither. Alright, good. Very good. So what are your favorite bits there? What do we see? We haven't talked much about uh, about Kurufin and the Sons of Feanor. Uh, you know, they sort of come up as sort of subjects of discussion. What can we see here in the Aeol versus uh, Kurufin discussion? Any thoughts? Oh, Chris, go ahead. Well, all I was going to say is that it demonstrates the very worst of the behavior of the Noldor in uh, in in Valerian. I mean, those are the two of the two of the worst of the of the sons. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's certainly, um, yeah, like everybody at their at their low point there. Yeah, Mike, go ahead. Oh, I just, I, I thought, you have my leave, but not my love. I thought for sure that he took that from Shakespeare, because that phrase is so terrific. And I Googled it, and I couldn't find it, and I was like, nope, that's original. But that's just <laughs> one of the, one of my favorite phrases in this whole book. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, you have my leave, but not my love. I agree. Uh, um yeah, no, and I mean, I, I love the way that the, the way that they're kind of sniping at each other and sort of both being, uh, showing a certain degree of sort of false smarmy politeness, um, though both making it perfectly obvious how much they completely despise each other, uh, until Aeol sort of, uh, overdoes it a little bit there, uh, at the end when he's mounting his horse and Kurufin in that final speech is just like takes the gloves off and is like, all right, <laughs> all right, man, I'm just going to, I'm just going to come straight out with you. Um, it's, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's sort of the, the dynamics of that conversation, uh, are really, are, are really interesting. I mean, again, here you can see an illustration again, Chris, coming back to the point that you were making, um, you know, just as on the other side, we were talking about Turgon as the example of, you know, the Noldor and the Sindar coming together. Here is a really bad example of the Sindar and a really bad example of the Noldor showing, like, the worst kind of illustration of Noldor-Sindar relations. I was thinking if Kurofin wasn't such a jerk himself, I mean, he he is making a a valid point about uh, Eol taking Erdhel, 
um, against her will. Um, so he does have kind of a little bit of moral high ground there, but I think that's well more than offset by his his, his lack of uh, good attitude. Yeah, yeah, no, I, exactly. I, I, it's uh, um, yeah, no. There's, it's clear that Kurafin does have a point, or at least it is clear that Aeol is in the wrong. Um, um, to be to to try to act as if, especially since we know he's faking, since since we know he's lying. I mean, he uh, we know he genuinely despises the Noldor, and for him to try kissing up the way that he does here um, is pretty disgusting. And Kurufin can see through it too, um, which makes for an interesting parallel, right? Kurufin seeing through Aeol like Idril seeing through Maegwen. Um That's a little uncomfortable and not terribly flattering to Idril, but. Um, well, great. That was fun. Well, it's, uh, it's, uh, getting to be time. I think we should probably go. Um, any final, any final thoughts or, uh, questions? Can I just ask about Galvorn, the, the black substance that, um, Aeol makes? Do we ever hear that, about that again, or is this the only reference to it? Um, well, we'll see the example of it as, uh, the black sword of Turin will be made of it. Um, but no, and of course, uh you know what uh what naturally it you know it makes me think of i think what we should be thinking of is mithril right especially since he um he he developed this in his in uh, you know in his learning with the dwarves um uh this is like the dwarves have this special metal that they have discovered and that they have developed and that they know how to work and they keep the secret of it. Um, so does he. And, and, and it's like the opposite. Instead of true silver, instead of this silver which is never tarnished and which is always shining and bright, you have this black metal, uh, that, that, that Aeol creates. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's like the unmithril. Right. Um, and no, it won't in itself. We won't see won't see anybody else working in it because I think Aeol takes the well, I was going to say takes the secret to his grave, takes the secret to his little dent in the in the plane next to Gondolin. But uh, um, but anyway, he he um, he we, we will see it, of course, come up. It Turin sword will be made of it. So the blackness of the black sword um will uh will be you know we should be remembering ale when this when this comes up <laughs> as Dave says he takes the secret to his puddle yeah, that's exactly right okay um <laughs> yeah Jordan is complaining about next week's assignment uh it is uh it is I know it's gonna be pretty rough uh trying to get through that whole chapter next time but uh i hope I hope we can do it um Compared to some of the chapters we've had, it's pretty long. It's almost ten pages long, but uh, uh, I think we can. I think we can. I think we can make it. Um, and then we start getting into serious stuff. And two weeks from now, we'll have to be. We'll have to make sure that we're all there for. Uh, uh, that we're all there to support Jordan two weeks from now. Uh, but uh, anyway, good night, everybody. Thanks for a particularly fun episode tonight, and we will uh, uh, look forward to uh, some, uh, some good Finrod times next week. Night, everybody. We hope you enjoyed this week's seminar. Before we let you go, though, I'd like to make three brief announcements. First, this seminar ran from late 
2010 through the end of summer 2011 and broadcast live on Middle Earth Network Radio. Middle Earth Network Radio is a 24-7 streaming internet radio station that plays both music and talk for serious fantasy fans. We host a variety of weekly live shows and special programming, including The Tolkien Professor, that you might enjoy. Find out more and listen live at myMERadio.us and by searching for Middle Earth Network on iTunes. Second, if you enjoy these seminars, you will also enjoy some other projects that its participants are working on for release very soon. This includes a new Silmarillion seminar focused on critical scholarship published about the Silmarillion and a new podcast entitled The Silmarillionaires, whose motto is Serious Tolkien Scholarship, Even More Serious Tomfoolery. Both will launch later this year or in early 2012. In the meantime, stay informed by liking the Silmarillionaires Facebook page, following our Twitter account, Silmarillionaire, without the E at the end, and by joining our group on mymiddle-earth.net. If you're interested in getting involved somehow, send me an email at dave at middleearthnetwork.com. Finally, and most important, registration is open for the spring 2012 semester at the Mythgard Institute. The classes read like a modern fantasy greatest hits list, including a Tolkien-Lewis class taught by the Tolkien professor himself, and a Harry Potter course taught by the Harry Potter pundits of Pottercast fame. Learn more and sign up for both classes at MythGuard.org. Follow the MythGuardian Twitter account and like the MythGuard Facebook page. Thanks for listening and Godspeed.